you've ever sang that one before. Isn't that a good one? What a truth. Come unto him and he will give you rest. We're so thankful uh, for this new hymn book. I, I'm not going to stop picking new ones until we've sang them all. So come ready, especially on Wednesday nights. We'll take opportunity to listen and to learn some new ones. I'm excited about that. Turn your Bibles to the book of Genesis, chapter number 49 tonight. Genesis 49, and we'll cover all of Genesis 49, and then next week is it. We made it to the end of the series of the life of... Who said woo? You should be disappointed. No, I'm just kidding. No, I'm excited that we'll be able to hear Brother Chip. He'll be preaching on Wednesday nights. Excited to hear from him again. And so uh, Genesis chapter number 49, and we'll just read verse number 1 and verse number 2. But before we do, keep your place in Genesis 49 and allow me to go to some New Testament passages of Scripture and just read a few uh, parallel passages that I'd like us to look at tonight as well in light of Genesis 49. The first would be 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse number 10. You don't have to turn there. The Bible says, For we must all appear before judgment, the judgment seat of Christ, that every one may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Romans 14 and verse number 12, a short one, says, So then every one of us shall give account of himself to, to God. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse number 11, it says, For other foundations can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if any man build up, uh, excuse me, build up uh, upon this foundation, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest. For the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work. Uh, of what sort it is, if any man's work abide which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved Yet so as by fire. Lamar, what does that have to do with Genesis 49? We're going to look tonight and see a parallel passage in Genesis 49 to those that we just read. Talking about the judgment seat of Christ. Genesis chapter 49, we'll just read those two verses. Uh, verse number 1 and verse number 2. And we're going to dive right into the study tonight. Genesis chapter 49 and verse number 1. And Jacob called unto his sons and said, Gather yourselves together that I may tell you that which shall befall you in the last days. Gather yourselves together and hear, ye sons of Jacob, and hearken unto Israel your father. And we're going to continue on, but we won't keep reading, but we're going to continue on looking at the blessings and the cursings at the seed of Jacob. This is the end of Jacob's life, and for the past couple of weeks, we have uh, taken really a, a break from looking at Joseph's life, and we've gone and dived into Joseph's brothers, and now his father. And uh, we're going to be looking at Joseph, or Jacob rather, tonight, this last chapter. He passes from the scene in the closing verse of this chapter, actually, and Jacob, the great patriarch of the faith, is no more. Uh, and so for just a few moments tonight, I'd like us to look at this subject in light of our passage tonight in Genesis 49, the judgment seat of Jacob. The judgment seat of Jacob. Let's go to the Lord and pray really quickly. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day, for your many blessings and allowing us the opportunity to come and to worship you tonight. Lord, we're thankful for this church and we're thankful for Wednesday night services and uh, what a blessing it is to come and to be refreshed and renewed through a light Bible study as well as to bring the requests that we have uh, before you. Lord, I don't take that lightly. There's some burdens that people are bearing tonight. We read of the missionaries, Lord, and the burdens that they're bearing, but Lord, no doubt the unspokens that were mentioned, Lord, there's some things that are weighing heavy upon people's heart what a comforting thought to know that we can come to a place like this and we can uh, 
we'll bring our requests before you, but not only that, have our brothers and our sisters in Christ to lift us up in prayer as well. We're thankful for that. Lord, I pray that you'd be with the study tonight. Uh, these closing chapters, these next two weeks are it, Lord, and we're done with the life of Joseph. Uh, and we've just seen your hand of sovereignty move all throughout Jacob's life, all throughout Joseph and his brother's life. Lord, you're a sovereign God. And I hope that if, if we would walk away for, from this uh, series knowing anything, it is this, that you're in control. You're in control of our situations in our life as well, Lord. We're thankful for your goodness to us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for reading with me. <clears throat> as we come to the end of the life of Jacob, he's now 147 years old. We've talked about that. He's 147 years old. Joseph is 56 years old. And Benjamin, being the youngest, he is, I believe, 39 years old. And I say all that to say that we've covered a lot of ground. We have covered a lot of ground. It's taken us 19 weeks, 18 weeks at least to get to this point, and we've covered a lot of ground in the life of Jacob. Obviously, we started in Genesis, really, we went back all the way to Genesis chapter 12 and covered uh, Genesis chapter 24 when Jacob comes onto the scene, and we, we've covered a lot of ground in regards to Jacob's house all of his kids and all of his family, and namely Joseph, and we've looked really inside of his life. And so we've covered a lot of ground, and, and we've seen a lot of things transpire and a lot of things take place, and uh, we're familiar with the story. I knew that coming into this series. I'm not gonna tell you anything new, nor have I told you really anything that you didn't already know or understand, but rather I maybe affirmed some things along the way, but nonetheless, we're very privy. This is a Wednesday night crowd. We understand what, what these Bible stories mean, and we understand the details behind them, but just humor me for a minute. This is the end of Jacob's life. He's a, a great man of God who's accomplished some great things for the Lord, and, and he comes to the end of his life, and, and now, again, he's sitting at his, his, uh, his bedside, barely with the, able, uh, the, the strength to be able to lean himself up, and he calls for his 12 sons to come by his bedside. And so, for some of Jacob's sons, this call that we read about in verse number one and number two, it brought forth a great spirit of anxiety and fear. How many of you have ever been called to your daddy's room? Okay, yeah, sometimes, uh, usually when you're fearful and you're afraid, it's because you have reason to be fearful or, and afraid because you've done something that requires discipline, right? And so, no doubt, some of Jacob's uh, sons are very afraid of what this meeting is going to bring forth. They're, they're, they're anxious, and, and for some of them, their fears are going to be confirmed because they have every right to be afraid because of their merit, because of what they've done. This is a big deal. Uh, in the Old Testament, the blessing that is bestowed upon the, the sons and the uh, descendants of a father, it's a big deal in the Old Testament. I'm not gonna get into it. You can do your own study. But this is a, a major event in their life. Uh, remember what transpired in the life of Jacob himself and, and, and how he connived and he, he uh, deceived his father Isaac into giving him the blessing? The blessing is a big deal. Uh, in, in regards to someone's blessing that they're giving as they pass from the scene. And so for some of them, they were very afraid. But for some of them, this was gonna be an exciting time. For some of them, this is gonna be a time of rejoicing because of their merit, because they've lived a life that is uh, something to be proud of and something that is worthy of being blessed. And so as a father, you need to understand, Jacob did not have the YMCA mentality. How many of you know what I mean by the YMCA mentality? Everyone's a winner, that's, is that not today? Everybody's a winner. We're not even going to keep score. Everybody just, everybody, at the trophy ceremony, don't, don't worry. Your little boy, your little girl is going to receive a trophy. It's going to be just as big as everyone else's uh, because everyone's a winner, right? Not in Jacob's book. There are winners and there are losers. And matter of fact, we're going to see that there are some major losers that he's going to address, and these are his own kids. Jacob was going to deal with his sons according to their merit of life. Some of it was good. Some of it was bad finish it, some of it was ugly. You didn't say ugly. Some of it was ugly. ugly. 
downright ugly. We're going to see some of these things that happen. It's nasty. But that wasn't going to stop Jacob from dealing with his sons accordingly because it was necessary for him to deal with his sons accordingly. And uh, Jacob's able to give this address to his sons because he knows his sons more than anybody else would know them. He knows them, why? Because he's their father. And so he knows how his sons have behaved. His know, he knows about what his sons have accomplished or not accomplished in their life. And so he's able to make a, a clear-minded decision in regards to these blessings and these cursings because he knows their merit. He's their father. You'll see where I'm going with that in just a moment. The New Testament teaches us that every believer will stand before the Lord Jesus Christ at the judgment seat of Christ. The judgment seat of Christ. Paul calls it the Bema seat of Christ, the exalted and the high seat of Jesus Christ. And we need to understand this is not where we're going to be judged for our sins. If you're saved tonight and you've accepted Jesus Christ, your sins are nailed to the cross. Are you thankful for that? We won't have to endure the judgment. Your sins are under the blood of Jesus Christ and we don't have to look in fear and trembling for the last days because we know that it's under the blood. Oh, praise his dear name. I'm thankful for that. But you know that uh, as believers, we're going, to, we're going to go through a judgment period and we're not going to be judged for our sins, but we're going to be judged for our service to him. There's going to come a time, and Paul references the Bema seat, it's the judgment seat of Christ, when every single believer is going to give an account for what they have accomplished or not accomplished for the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're saved, say amen. amen. You know you've enlisted for that judgment. Whether you like it or not, you're going to give an account. You're going to give an account for what you have accomplished for Jesus Christ or not accomplished. It's going to be a judgment, but it's going to be an award ceremony for some of us. There's some of us are going to be afraid. We're going to be fearful going to that, but some of us can rejoice in knowing that we've lived our lives in devotion to Jesus Christ. It's going to be an award ceremony. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we read it just a moment ago. Verse number 9, wherefore we labor, that whether present or absent we may be accepted of him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that every one may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Verse number 11, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. But we are made manifest unto God, and I trust also are made manifest in your conscience. So often we use these verses to make an appeal for salvation, and, and absolutely we ought to do that. We persuade men. But you know that Paul is actually talking to Christians? And the persuading men that he's talking about in this passage is actually Christians persuading other Christians to live their life in devotion to Jesus Christ because of this award ceremony that's going to take place, this judgment seat that we're going, to, we're going to be a part of. He's making this appeal for Christians to appeal and to persuade other Christians to get on board and serving Jesus. So tonight, for just a few moments, I'd like us to look at Genesis 49, and I'd like us to take some inside look, uh, some inside looks at Jacob's sons and the blessings and the cursings. You're thinking, oh my goodness, there's 12 sons, Lamar's got a 12-point message. We're not gonna look at every single one tonight, I promise you. I'd just like to highlight just a couple. Can we do that tonight? Just a couple, but I want us to look at them in light of eternity and look at them in light of the judgment seat of Jacob and what it's going to mean in parallel to the judgment seat of Jesus Christ when we will all stand before our Savior Jesus Christ and give an account for what we have done in this body. So first, uh, number one, I'd like you to notice in our text, a man devastated. A man devastated. The first man that we see in Genesis 49 is a man by the name of Reuben. We're all too familiar with Reuben. I mean, we've, we've looked at Reuben and we've seen, some, thing that, that, seen uh, some things that he's done or not done. He's constantly, remember, interjecting himself. He's constantly speaking out. He's constantly speaking out of term. Uh, he's the firstborn of the 12 sons of Jacob. Uh, the son that you'd expect would have everything put together. He's the rightful recipient of the first blessing. He's the one who deserved the most. He would probably be the one that would deserve the best. Why? Because he's the firstborn. How many of you are the firstborn and think that you're the best? 
Yeah, you deserve the best. You're the poster child. You're the one who set the precedent for how everything is supposed to be done. My eldest sister, Heidi, man, sometimes I couldn't stand her because she was perfect and she did everything right. And everything that I did, whether right or wrong, was always compared to what Heidi. Why can't you be more like Heidi, your sister? Why? She's the firstborn. Well, you know what? Reuben didn't live up to that stigma. (laughs) Reuben didn't live up to the stigma of the oldest child who had everything put together. Look at verse number three. I want you to, 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 to just bear with me. I'm gonna, I'm gonna dramatize this a little bit. Reuben, Reuben, thou art firstborn, my might, and the beginning of my strength, the excellency of dignity, and the excellency of power. Man, oh man, Reuben, you're quite the guy. Reuben, you are a man amongst men. You are a saint. Man, Reuben's got it all put together. What does he say, say next in verse number four? Unstable as water. <laughs> Unstable as water, thou shalt not excel, because thou wentest up to thy father's bed, then defiledest uh, thou it, uh, he went up to my couch. The portion of scripture talks about this, Reuben's potential, first letter A, Reuben's potential, write that down. Humanly speaking, Reuben had all the potential that anyone could ever long for. He was the firstborn, our text says that he was mighty, he was the beginning of Jacob's strength, he was dignified, he was excellency, he was the excellency of power. Reuben was a man of endless potential, but letter B, Reuben's problem. Reuben's problem. I kind of get the picture that, you know, again, we read in Genesis 48 how Jacob barely has enough strength to lift himself from his bed whenever he meets Joseph. And so I'd imagine that he's sitting there and he's almost like sprawled out like this. And he's like, Reuben, where's my son Reuben? And we know this about Reuben. He's not very self-aware. Reuben is constantly thinking that he's better than he is. He's constantly trying to interject himself in regards to the the situation with Joseph, in regards to the situation with uh, Benjamin. And so nonetheless, I'm sure he comes running over. Yes, Father, what can I do for you? Oh, Reuben, you're mighty. Reuben, you're the source of my strength. You are the excellency of power. Yes, Father, what else am I? Unstable as water. It's like a slap right in the face. It's almost like he was uh, setting him up to just give him the biggest letdown. Unstable as water. What Jacob is saying is that Reuben has lived his life instable or unstable. Unstable as water, up and down, up and down, constantly seeking to the bottom and constantly rising to the top. Inconsistent. Sounds like someone we know. Jacob, but nonetheless, he says, Reuben, you are unstable as water. Reuben has not lived up to his full potential because of selfishness and pride. Why? He's lived off of the emotions rather than faith. Did you hear me? Reuben has lived his life off of emotions and making emotional-based decision after emotional-based decision rather than making faith-based decisions. Here's some proof. Genesis in chapter number 35, you don't have to turn there, but Genesis 35, we read about the death of Rachel, and we talked about this two weeks ago, but man, Jacob loved Rachel. It was his favorite wife, and he loved, and he worked for Rachel, and Rachel bared Joseph, so obviously he loved her more, but in, in, in verse number 18 of Genesis 35, it says, and it came to pass, as her soul was in departing, for she died, that she called his name Benoni. But his father called him Benjamin. So now at this darkest moment in, in Jacob's life, he loses his wife during, uh, during this childbirth for Benjamin. And where is, ben, where is Reuben? Reuben should have been the one to comfort jo- uh, Jacob in his time of need. He should have been the one to come and condole his father and to comfort him in his time of need. But look what he's doing in verse number 22. This is sick. And it came to pass when Israel dwelt in the land that Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine. And Israel heard it. At the point of death, when he should have been there comforting his father, he's there, and he goes into his stepmother Bilhah, and he lays with her. What a sleazebag. 
I mean, seriously, what a jerk. This is exactly why we've read time and time again that Reuben was never, never, never viewed in regards to Jacob and his persona of Reuben. He was never viewed in high esteem because of what happened right there. Reuben's flesh wanted fulfillment, so Reuben acted on his emotions, and Reuben went unto Billah. Reuben saw it, Reuben wanted it, Reuben acted upon it. Emotionally based person, emotionally based decision. Genesis 37, we've beat this dead horse, I won't keep going on this, but we read about Joseph and how he goes to Dothan and they see him coming from afar off and they conspire to kill him and who interjects on behalf of Joseph? Oh man, old Reuben. Reuben comes in in verse number 21, he says, of, of chapter 37, it says, and Reuben heard it. They were gonna transpire to kill Joseph and Reuben heard it and he delivered him out of their hands and said, let us, uh, let us not kill him. And Reuben said unto them, shed no blood but cast him into his, uh, this pit that is in the wilderness and lay no hand upon him that he might rid him out of their hands to deliver him to his father what a great older brother i mean what a wonderful man great intentions pure intentions he's just looking out for his older brother look what happens in verse number 29 and reuben returns so he's gone for a portion of time we know they throw him into the pit then they take him out of the pit while reuben's gone the text indicates they sell him to the midianites reuben comes back onto the scene and reuben returned unto the pit and behold joseph was not in it uh, in the pit, and he rent his clothes, and he returned unto his brethren, and said, the child is not, and I, whither shall I go? Intentions were not so pure. His intentions were not so pure. He was not looking out for the well-being of Joseph, but rather he was looking out for the well-being of himself. Whenever he saw this opportunity, he saw an opportunity to get ahead, and he's thinking, I don't know, the Bible doesn't say, but I'm just kind of thinking that what he's thinking is, this is Joseph, his son of promise, and they're gonna kill him, so what happens if I and the one who delivers the son of promise to the hands of Jacob, maybe I'll become the son of promise. Maybe, maybe my father will look at me with the same kind of favoritism that he looks at, at Joseph with, but nonetheless, his intentions were not so pure. All throughout Reuben's life, he acted upon his emotions, and an emotionally driven person will never reach their spiritual potential. We cannot trust our emotions. We can only trust the spirit of God. If Reuben wanted pleasure, he sought pleasure. If Reuben wanted power, he sought power. If Reuben wanted profit, he sought profit. Whatever Reuben wanted, whatever he set before him, Reuben went after. And he would do whatever it took to get ahead. Reuben had all the potential in the world, but he had serious problem, which leads to letter C, Reuben's punishment. Reuben's punishment in verse number four, thou shalt not excel. Thou shalt not excel. Unstable as water, thou shalt not excel. What a sad remark to receive from your dying father on his deathbed. You're the eldest son. Again, you had all the potential in the world, but rather than saying you are blessed, he looks at Reuben and he says, thou shalt not excel. What a sad remark to receive from your father. Some, some people might look at that and be like, man, what a, come on, Jacob, you're being a little heavy-handed. Why don't you administer a little bit of grace? Hey, he's not entitled to grace. No one's entitled to grace. That would defeat the purpose of grace. Because Reuben lived an emotionally driven life, he missed the blessing of his father, Jacob. All the potential in the world went down the drain because of Reuben's emotionally based decisions. Rather than living on faith, he lives on emotion. Devastation. When we face the judgment seat of Christ, what a devastating time it will be for some of us. Think about that. 
what a devastating time it will be for some of us as we come before our Savior, Jesus Christ, and we have to look at him having to, ha- having to look back upon our lives and give an account for the things that we've accomplished or not accomplished and said, yeah, I made an emotionally based decision here, didn't live by faith here, moved with my emotions here. Matthew, in I believe it's chapter number five, gives the, the parable of the talents. We all know it. The parable of the talents and how he gives a portion, large portion to one and a medium amount of, uh, portion to uh, the second and then a little amount to the third person. And that's where we get the text. Uh, uh, you can come into your, uh, I believe it's you can come into your, your, sir or your, your master and he'll look at you and he'll say, my beloved servant, or not the, my beloved servant, but he'll say, well done thou good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful in a few things. I'll make you ruler over many things. You have a responsibility, in other words, to use your life, your talents and your abilities for the Lord. You have a responsibility to live out your life in concordance to the leadership of the Holy Spirit and live out your life not emotionally based but faith based. Charles Spurgeon said this, if God has called you to be a minister, don't stoop to be a king. If, uh, that's backwards in, in the world today. Whenever we look at the, uh, the idea of working in ministry, it's, it's viewed as very low. But when God has called you to do anything, I'll just borrow from that and kind of build off that. If God's called you to do anything, don't view it here, view it here. Viewed as the priority. If God's called you to be a nursery worker, you be a nursery worker. If God's called you to be a Sunday school teacher, you don't stoop to be anything less than a Sunday school teacher. If God's called you to work in music, if God's called you to be a custodian, don't stoop to be anything less than what God has called you to be. Psalms chapter 84 and verse number 10 says, for a day in the courts is better than a thousand. Then he says, I'd rather be a doorkeeper. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wicked. For the Lord God is the sun and shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. Here it is. No good thing. No good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the man that trusteth in thee. No good thing will he withhold. In other words, the man who's created all good, no good thing will he withhold. That's a big deal for them that walk uprightly. Don't stoop to be anything less than what God has desired you to be. That's exactly what we read about in the life of Reuben. A man devastated. So a man devastated in the life of Reuben, number two, men disgraced. Men disgraced. In Genesis 49, in verse number five, we read about two men, Simeon and Levi. Simeon and Levi. Simeon and Levi are brethren. Instruments of cruelty are in their habitations. O my soul, come not thou unto their secret, unto their assembly, mine honor be not thou united, for in their anger they slew a man, and in their self-will they digged down a wall, cursed be their anger, for it was fierce in their wrath, it was cruel, I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. In, this, in these couple of verses we read about two men, we read about uh, two men that were disgraced, Levi and Simeon. Why were they disgraced? A few things quickly, letter A, we see the sin we see the sin, we won't go back and read, but in Genesis chapter number uh, 34, we read about the defilement of Dinah, remember that, in the land of Shechem, and how the men of, of Shechem defile Dinah, and two rights don't make a wrong. Remember we talked about right is always right, no matter where, when, or how, and it's never right to do wrong in order to get a chance to do right. And so what they do, Levi and Simeon, as well as Gad and Asher, they go in and they defile, they, they, they murder the men of Shechem. So there's the sin. Number two, I want you to notice the stink. Let her be the stink. These are not my words. These are Jacob's words in verse number 30 of chapter 34. And Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, ye have troubled me to make me to stink. 
troubled me to make me to stink among the inhabitations of the land, among the Canaanites and the Parasites, and I being few in number, they shall gather themselves together against me and slay me, and I shall be destroyed, I and my house. Jacob is saying to Simeon and Levi that their wicked, vile acts upon the men of Shechem have brought dishonor upon the name of the house of Israel. Their actions performed against these men of Shechem have put a mark on the name of Jacob. That leads to letter C, the sentence. Again, in verse number seven of our text, Genesis 49, verse seven, cursed. Cursed be their anger, for it was fierce, and their wrath, for it was cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. If you do a little bit of study, you'll find that that's exactly what God does. In regards to the tribe of Simeon, in regards to the tribe of Levi, Levi does go through this portion where they do repent a little bit and God's able to use the Levites in the house, but you'll find that Simeon never makes his sin right before God and eventually it leads to the complete dismantlement of the tribe to where they're completely absorbed by the tribe of Judah and they're no more referenced in scripture. Why? Because in Genesis 49, as they stood before their father Jacob, they never dealt properly with their sin. They were disgraced. Now we, we need to understand that although they were disgraced, Jacob did not disown them. J Jacob did not disown them. They were still able to be members of the family. But what an embarrassing time that must have been for Simeon and Levi as they stand before their father as he's departing from this life and them to look at their father and in the company of all their brothers, their father to look at them and say, cursed, cursed. How embarrassing. What an embarrassing time it will be for those who stand before their heavenly father having not dealt properly with their sin. We're gonna give an account, the judgment seat of Christ. What an embarrassing time it's gonna be before, for some of us when we walk before our Savior Jesus Christ and we have not dealt in this life, we have not dealt with our sin properly. Embarrassing. First John chapter one and verse number nine, we know this verse, we can quote it backwards and forwards. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And again, a lot of the times we use that very verse in regards to witnessing and sharing our faith and it definitely has that application, but let me tell you, it definitely has application to the believer as well because we can confess our sins and he will be faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. As a believer, we ought to be in a constant state of repentance. Why? Because we have things we need to repent of. How many of you, you were perfect the moment you got saved and from then on you've just been perfect? Then you have a responsibility to confess your sins. And he'll be faithful and just to forgive you, but not if you don't ask. We see a man devastated in Reuben. We see a man disgraced. We see men disgraced in Simeon and Levi. Number three, I want you to write this down. A man delivered. A man delivered. Oh, Joseph? No, not Joseph. We'll get to him in a minute. I'm talking about Judah. A man delivered in Judah. Talk about a past. Talk about a past. Talk about a man with a rap sheet. Talk about, I mean, seriously, the things that happened in Genesis 38, and I won't re-preach that message, but some of the darkest things that we read about in Scripture goes in into his daughter-in-law, Tamar, and, 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 and commits this adulterous, uh, 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 engages in this adulterous relationship with his daughter-in-law. Has that worn off, by the way? That's wicked, that's vile, that's disgusting, that's nasty. Nonetheless, that's exactly what Judah, that's exactly what Judah did, and what happens? She bears two sons, and he has children, he has offspring with his daughter-in-law. And Judah, 
as he stands beside Jacob at the bedside of Jacob, he just transpired what took place in Simeon and Levi. He just uh, watched what transpired in Reuben. No doubt Judah is thinking, humanly speaking, they have nothing on the things that I have done. I'm looking at it, and from Judah's perspective, I'd imagine that he went in great fear and great trembling before his father and knowing everything that he had done in the past and all the things that he had uh, done, the wicked acts that he had performed in Genesis chapter number 38, no doubt he's fearful going before his father. Why? Because if there's anybody that deserves a cursing, it's me, I'm Judah. But look what happens in verse number eight. Judah, thou art he whom thy brethren shall praise. Thy hand shall be in the neck of thine enemies. Thy father's children, that's his brothers, shall bow down before thee. Judah is not the same man that he was in Genesis 38. Remember, Judah has, has removed the callousness from his heart and he's repented and God's able to use and able to mend that relationship. In spite of all those things that Judah's done, remember, God can write the rest of your story. And that's exactly what God does. And man, the things that God's able to accomplish in the tribe of Judah, it's amazing. We get forth our son, Jesus Christ. I don't want to spoil the story. In a moment, we'll talk about that. But uh, Judah is able to turn things around because he dealt very seriously with his sin. A few things I'd like us to notice about this man delivered Judah. Number one, letter A, rather, Judah's praise. Judah's praise. Judah's name means praise, actually. Jacob tells Judah in verse number eight that his brothers are going to praise him. He says that my sons are going to bow down in reverence and in honor for you. Here's a question. Why did Jacob not deal so, uh, why did Jacob deal so passively with Judah rather than dealing with him according to how he had dealt with Simeon, Reuben, and, and uh, Levi? I mean, why did, why, did, why did Judah get to prosper? Because he dealt with his sin. Letter B, we see this. I want, to, I want us to see this really quick. This is so neat. Jacob's prophecy. We have Judah's praise. Letter B, Jacob's prophecy. Look at verse number nine. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, thou art gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion. And as an old lion, who shall rouse him up? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh come, and unto him shall the gathering of the people be. Jacob gives this prophecy in Genesis 49 that speaks to what is to come for the tribe of Judah. You're going to notice for the rest of the Old Testament that Judah, the tribe of Judah, is not ever going to be without an elevated king in their ranks. They're not ever going to be without an elevated king, but then he says this, until Shiloh come. Until Shiloh come, and unto him shall the gatherings of the people be. Who's Shiloh? Who's Shiloh? I, I did all kinds of research, and I couldn't, uh, like, who is Shiloh? I'd like to think it's still, oh, man, it's got to be an Old Testament picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, the text doesn't say that, nor does history say that. I don't really know who Shiloh is, but look at the description. Let's just assume who is, uh, Shiloh is based off the description that Joseph, or Jacob gives, rather, in verse number nine. Judah is a lion's whelp. Lion's whelp, that's a young lion. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, thou art gone up. He shall stoop down. He shall stoop down. In other words, the lion, the lion, the, the king, the young king, the lion was elevated, but stooped down and brought himself low. He was elevated. Are you getting it? He was elevated, but he brought himself low. He crouched as a lion, and as an old lion, then he asks this rhetorical question, who shall rouse him up? Who shall rouse him up? Or in other words, who shall rise, who shall rise up this sleeping king? Who shall rise up this sleeping young king who has stooped and brought himself low? Jacob's, again, asking this rhetorical question because they understood that the lion, they don't crouch because they're in fear. 
A lion doesn't crouch because they're in fear. Why? Because they're a lion. What do they have to be afraid of? They're the king of the jungle. Uh, a lion is not going to crouch in fear, but a lion is going to crouch. Why? Because they're waiting for the right moment. They're waiting for the right moment to pounce. They're, they bring themselves low to crouch, not because they're afraid, but because they're waiting. Jesus Christ brought himself low. I believe this is a picture of Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ, he's referenced, and we're going to read it in just a moment in Revelation chapter number five is a lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. Jesus Christ, no one brought him down. He brought himself down. Jesus Christ willingly of his own volition brought himself low. Philippians chapter two and verse number five says, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus who, here it is, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. A little lower. And took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in the fashion of man, as he humbled himself, he became obedient unto death. Here's the lowest point, even the death of the cross. He was elevated, but he brought himself low. Keep reading in verse number nine of, of Philippians chapter two. Wherefore, God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and every tongue shall confess, should confess, that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Can we say amen? But that hasn't happened yet. That's not transpired yet. A lot of theologians believe that the, the lion's whelp that he's referencing in Genesis 49 is that Jesus brought himself low, but who's gonna rise him up? Jesus rose from the grave. I don't believe that. I believe that we have yet to see this rising because this hasn't transpired yet. Jesus Christ rose from the dead, but he came into his own and his own received him not. But look, I want, I want you to look at Revelation chapter five. Future things to come in regards to the coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He says, and one of the elders said unto me, weep not, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. Someone's gonna wake that lion. One day there's gonna come a time when Jesus Christ is gonna be exalted above every name and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He was exalted, he brought himself low and we're gonna be there one day when we see Jesus Christ exalted and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess Jesus Christ is Lord. But the reason I share all that is to just draw correlation to this. Judah has a part in that. But what would have happened if Judah had dealt with his sin like Reuben and like Simeon and like Levi had dealt with their sin. If he had dealt with their sin, like, like uh, his sin, like they had dealt with their sin, we would have a very different award ceremony. Matter of fact, it would have been more like a funeral march. But consider the joy that must have overcome Judah as he steps forward, here it is, deserving a cursing but receiving a blessing. Deserving a cursing but receiving a blessing. He was self-aware unlike his older brother. He understood what he had done. He understood where he was at. And no doubt I know that as Judah went before his father, he expected to receive the cursing of all cursings, but yet he's seen, he's seen being blessed. And we're gonna read about the blessings of the tribe of Judah to come in the New Testament when we read of Matthew and how he brings forth his son, Jesus Christ, the Messiah. This is what Jacob's prophesying back in Genesis chapter number 49. So we see a man devastated in Reuben. We see men disgraced in Simeon and Levi. We see a man delivered in Judah. And lastly, number four, I want us to notice. A man distinguished. A man distinguished. We've taken a couple of weeks off, but we finally are gonna make our way back to Joseph. Joseph, in verse number 22 of our text, it says, Joseph is a fruitful bough, even a fruitful bough by a well whose branches run over the wall. The archers have sorely grieved him and shot at him and hated him. Pause for a second. Is that not true? 
The archers that he's referencing is his brothers. Archers he's referencing could even be everybody. I feel like everybody would just had it out against Joseph. And I like what he says. The archers, uh, the archers surely grieved him and shot at him and hated him. In other words, to bring it up to modern terminology, jo- Joseph had a lot of haters. Joseph had a lot of haters. Joseph had more haters than anybody I've ever read about in Scripture. But you know how you deal with haters? Haters, the, the way you deal with haters, become a waiter. Did you hear me? The way that you deal with haters is become a waiter. That's what Joseph teaches us. Is Joseph could have gotten himself in a lot of trouble and a lot of mess if he would have in, integrated himself into his situations and his problems, but rather he said, you know what? Hands off, I'm gonna let God do his work. And now we're reading about the benefits of that. Hey, you got haters? Become a waiter. Look at verse number 24. But his bow abode in strength, and the arms of his hands were made strong by the hands of the mighty God of Jacob. From thence is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. A few things quickly I'd like us to notice of Joseph. Letter A, I want us to notice his confidence. Joseph's confidence as he comes to his father's bedside. Uh, Joseph stood before his father not in fear but in confidence. Why? Number one, Jacob had already given him the promise. Did you hear me? Jacob had already given him the promise. Why did Joseph, be, why was he able to walk before his father at his deathbed with such confidence, with his head held high, without any ounce of fear in him? Why? Because in the previous chapter, very simply, Jacob had already given him the promise. Jacob reveals himself to Joseph, and he, remember, he finds his strength, and he says, I'm going to give you a portion of the blessing that I'm not going to give to any of my other sons. I'm going to give you an extra dose of blessing, and he blesses Manasseh, and he blesses Ephraim. Joseph had already been given the promise in the previous chapter. Joseph could stand in confidence at this reward ceremony because Jacob had already given him the promise. Number two, he could stand in confidence because, this is very important, Joseph had lived up to his potential. Joseph had lived up to his potential. Look at verse number 24. But his bow abode in strength, and the arms of his hands were made strong because of his intuitiveness, because of his ability to adapt, because of his strong will, because of his ability uh, to put up the hand to it. No, no, it says what? By the hand of the Almighty God of Jacob. He abode in strength, and the arms of his hands were made strong by the hand of the Almighty God. He abode in strength. Why? How, how did he abide in strength? The Lord Jesus, not the Lord Jesus Christ, but God, the Almighty God of Jacob. Why could Joseph stand before his father in confidence? Joseph, or excuse me, Jacob had already given the promise. And Joseph had lived up to his potential. That's why Joseph could approach the judgment seat of his father in full confidence. Letter B, we see his compensation. So we have his confidence. Letter B, his compensation. Look at verse number uh, 25. Because of these things, in verse number 25 it says, Even by the God of thy father, whom shall help thee, and by the Almighty, whom shall bless thee with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that lieth under, blessings of the uh, breast and of the womb, uh, the blessings of thy father have prevailed above the blessings of my uh, progenitors unto the utmost bound of the everlasting hills, They shall be on the head of Joseph and on the crown of the head of him that, here it is, was separated from his brethren. So in this blessing that we see, he says that he's gonna bless his womb, he's gonna bless uh, the things that he puts his hand to do, but then it says that you're gonna be compensated for all those years of pain. And on the crown of the head of him that was separated from his brethren. In his final award ceremony, in this final award ceremony, amid all the blessings and the cursings of Jacob's 12 sons, Jacob's blessing was the biggest blessing. 
Everybody else got blessed, and, and some people got cursed, but nonetheless, Jacob's or Joseph's blessing was the biggest blessing. He got the biggest piece of cake. Why? I don't have any funny words. I don't have any funny statements. It's very simply this. Joseph was faithful. Joseph was faithful. The reason that he is able to approach uh, the, the judgment seat of Jacob in confidence and be compensated the best and the, 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 the first blessing he's able to get the most out of jo- uh, his father Jacob was because simply this, he was faithful. I hope you've learned that as we've looked at the life of Joseph. It's simply this, he teaches us to be faithful and wait on God. How many of you have ever heard of the famous preacher C.T. Studd? Nobody? Just a few people. C.T. Studd. We're going to close with this. And it's a, it's a, a long uh, a poem. And, and most of us know a portion of it. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. How many of you have ever heard that before? It's actually part of a rather lengthy poem. I'd like to read it to you tonight. We'll say a few closing, addresses, uh, cl- closing remarks and we'll be dismissed. Two little lines I heard one day. Traveling along life's busy way. Bringing conviction to my heart and from my mind would not be depart. Only one life twill soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one. Soon will its fleeting hours be done. Then in that day, my Lord to meet and stand before his judgment seat. Only one life twill soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, the still small voice, gently pleads for a better choice. Biting me, uh, me selfish aims to leave and to God's holy will to cleave. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, a few brief years. Each with its burdens, hopes, and fears. Each with its clay I must fulfill. Living for self or in his will. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. When this bright world would tempt me sore, when Satan would a victory score, when self would seek to have its way, then help me, Lord, with joy to stay. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Give me, Father, a purpose deep. In joy or sorrow, thy word to keep. Faithful and true, whate'er the strife, pleasing thee in my daily life. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Oh, let my love with favor burn, and from the world now let me turn, living for thee and thee alone, bring the pleasure on thy throne. Only one life will soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one, now let me say thy will be done. And when at last I'll hear the call, I know I'll say t'was worth it all. Only one life will soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And when I am dying, how happy I'll be if the lamp of my life has been burned out for thee. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. The judgment seat of Christ should motivate us to live out our lives in great anticipation of the coming rewards that await those who were faithful to do the work of the Lord like Joseph was. So I I simply ask you a simple question tonight. When it comes to the judgment seat of Christ, are you dreading it? Are you looking forward to it? Like Joseph, do you welcome the judgment seat of your father in the confidence of knowing that you've been faithful, a faithful servant, ready to receive your reward? 
Let's be prepared to stand before him in confidence as Joseph was, but it's only gonna come by not living an emotionally based life, but living a life of faith and a, faith, uh, a life that is lived out in faithfulness to the Lord Jesus Christ, we are all gonna give an account. Yes, as Christians, in between the cross and heaven, we live a life and we ought to live out a life devoted to Jesus Christ. Not just for what it will benefit us, but what, it, what it'll benefit the kingdom of God. But I'm anxiously anticipating the day when I get to look before my, my Father, Jesus Christ, and I hope that I'll be able to hear the words, well done, thou good and faithful servant. I hope that it'll be a reward ceremony, not a funeral march. I'm thankful I'll never be disowned for the things that I don't accomplish, but I can tell you right now, some of us need to change the way that we live our lives and live out our lives in devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ because there's a award ceremony coming. And I hope that we'll be able to hear the words, well done, thou good and faithful servant. But there's only one life, it'll soon be over. Only what's done for Christ will last. Let's, let's live in confidence in knowing that the way that we are living is a way that pleases the Lord Jesus Christ in faithfulness. Let's stand and we'll have a, a brief word of prayer and then we'll enter into our prayer time. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day and for your many blessings. Pray that you'd be with us tonight. I pray that your word would continue to speak to hearts, Lord, tonight. And I pray that we'd be faithful servants of you. As, as we live here on earth, we'd be faithful to live out our life in devotion to your cause, that we wouldn't stoop to be anything less than what you want us to be, Lord. Uh, I'm excited and I'm anxiously anticipating the day when I'll look at my Savior's face and I pray that I'll be able to hear the words, well done. But that's not something you just give lightly, Lord. You only give to those who have done well. Lord, I pray that we would do that. Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. We'll enter into our prayer time. You can deal with the Lord there, or you can uh, go and pray over the uh, requests that were mentioned.